Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of This Week in Hearing. I am Brian Taylor, and our topic today is inclusive communication skills and serving diverse communities. Uh, and we're going to talk about how you can bring those two things to life in your practice. And speaking of diversity and diverse backgrounds, our guest today is audiologist Alejandra Ulare, and uh, she has a great new book out. Uh, it's entitled uh, Audiology Services in Diverse Communities, a tool to help clinicians working with Spanish-speaking patients and families. So that's a long title. The main title is Audiology Services in Diverse Communities. Uh, and I want to welcome to the broadcast, Alejandra. Hi. Hi, Brian. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. Uh, and I thought a good place to start our conversation today would be for you to kind of share with our viewers uh, your diverse background. Thank you so much. So um, I'm an audiologist. I was born and raised in Ecuador. So you can imagine Spanish is my first language. I trained in audiology in the U.S. and in Australia. I've been practicing audiology for about 20 years. And early in my training, I learned about the impact that audiologists can have in public health. So hearing loss is a public health problem. And, and ever since I've been interested in supporting and leading initiatives that can bring services to more people, especially underserved communities. Um, you know, in audiology, we have a wide scope of practice from prevention and promotion of healthy hearing to early detection and diagnosis of hearing imbalance problems, to rehabilitation of these problems, you know, including amazing technologies such as cochlear implants. But if you think about all those areas, all those areas are of public health interest. So I'm always thinking, what can I do to create a bigger impact? You know, I mean, there is only so many patients I can see in my private practice. I'm a solo provider um, practice. So I'm always thinking like, how can I, what can I do to um, expand access and service delivery? So um, a little bit more about me. I've been very fortunate to be able to work in different countries and see different health systems. So I trained in Australia and I did, you know, a lot of my clinical placements over there. I worked a couple of years in the United Kingdom in the NHS system and a couple of, I worked more years in, in Ecuador in a very different healthcare system in Latin America. And I've been in the US um, for the last 10 years. So when I've moved here, um, initially I managed the audiology department at the University of Chicago. And then later on, I went on to open my private practice and that's where I am now. Well, I want, I want to ask you about that. First, I want to mention that I think you're the first guest we've had on This Week in Hearing that has a degree from three different continents, right? Uh, South America, North America, and Australia. Uh, so talk about a diverse background. And um, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about your uh, practice in Chicago that you opened a few years back. Uh, you know, what's your mission in the practice? Uh, what what are the typical patients that you see there? I'm really curious about the private practice that you have in Chicago. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Brian. Um, so as many of your listeners, you know, we all wear different hats. So I have two major hats right now. One is my private practice. And in the private practice, we see mostly adult patients with hearing disorders. We concentrate on hearing disorders and do diagnostics, um, amplification, and cochlear implants. When I set up the private practice, I wanted to 
um, I wanted to target a niche of need, I guess a, a gap, in a service gap that I thought existed. And that was cochlear implant patients accessing services in a private practice, you know, an established adult cochlear implant patient, it's no longer in need. It's no longer or always in need of hospital setting services. So I figured if I if I can expand those services and and be and have a, a, a medical model, but still more accessible to people and just and, and offer cochlear implant assessment and cochlear implant mappings. So I can be maybe the link of the hearing aid patient in a private practice, link that patient to a cochlear implant program in a major hospital. So that was my initial idea when I set, set up the practice. Um, recently, I founded a, a new entity, which is called um, Audiology in Espanol. And this is a learning platform that teaches medical Spanish for audiologists. And its vision is to advance audiological care for the Hispanic Latina community. So um, basically that's where I spend most of my time between the, the private practice and audiology in Espanol. Gotcha. So you must've found some time to write a book. Uh, yes. What prompted you to write the, the book that I mentioned? Thank you, Brian. So it's a long story and I'm going to make it short. When I okay. moved, when I moved to the U.S., I worked in a hospital setting. So I was a fluent Spanish-speaking audiologist in a hospital in Chicago. So quickly, I realized I saw the difference I made every time I interacted and provided care to a monolingual Spanish-speaking patient and their families. I saw the struggles they faced to navigate you know, a complex system such as the healthcare system. I saw that professional interpreting services were not always available despite you know, best efforts. Um, any of your listeners who are my colleagues in audiology and have covered an ENT clinic, they know what I'm talking about. They know how, how busy and, and changing clinics, uh, these type of clinics are. You know, the, the last minute patient that was added to the clinic because of a sudden hearing loss and, you know, things that you cannot always prepare for. Even when you are in a major a hospital setting where you have interpreting services on site. So even in those situations, I saw that professional interpreters were not always available. And I also saw that there is, you know, some... Some degree, I also saw like a, some issues with the quality of the interpreting of the interpretation. Mm -hmm. So that was my first experience, you know, my first um, I guess overview of what was surrounding me. And then, so the more I I read about it, then I realized that this is not an issue related to audiology or related to a hospital. This is an issue related to you know healthcare in in a bigger spectrum. Right. So, um, so if you think about it, there are not many Latino Hispanic audiologists, right? So mm -hmm. ASHA reports that about 8% of its members uh, represent minority communities or ethnic racial groups. 8%. I mean, all minorities. Small, yeah, relative to the number of Spanish-speaking people in the entire country, it's a very small number, right? Exactly. And, and this is 8% represent all minorities. It's not even 8% Latino. Oh. Um, 
And then if you think about it, you know, in the medical field, it's not very different. 5% uh, of physicians identified as Latino Hispanics. That was one thing. Then the next thing I learned is that professional interpreters are underused. So studies have shown that between 30 and 40% of physicians don't use professional interpreters. So they're relying either on their own language, Spanish language skills, or they're relying on untrained staff or maybe family members. Sometimes even children are used for interpreting. And accuracy during the interpretation. You know, when you use untrained staff or family members, there is about a 50%. Um, so they they make about 50% of errors during the clinical encounter. You're not trained to do that, right? Can you imagine it? Can you imagine 50% of the clinical <laughs> encounter being interpreted uh, incorrectly, I guess? Um But professional interpreters also make about 25% of errors. There is a recent study that um, I find it shocking because it goes to the core of our profession. So they were going off, so they were analyzing if every time a clinician, an English speaking clinician, attempts to build rapport with the patient, right? Um, that's essential for building trust, for your patients asking questions, and also for your patients trusting the recommendations you're making. So when they were were analyzing, the researchers were analyzing the data, they found that clinicians attempted to build rapport. And how do you build rapport? Maybe you say a compliment. Maybe you say you use um, inclusive pronouns, such as, let's say, I would say, Mrs. Smith, I think we are going to make progress if I increase the gain in your hearing aids. I'm not wearing hearing aids, but I I use we to imply that, you know, we are in this together. You know, Mm -hmm. we are going to make progress. So all those, so they coded all these attempts, right? And they, and when they, what they found out is that 82% of those attempts were not translated. Wow. Can you imagine every time the clinic and those attempts, I mean, building clinical rapport with the patient is essential. I mean, it's, it's everything. It's that connection with the patient is, is your patient trusting, trusting the diagnosis you're giving and the recommendations. Exactly. So it, it, it shows you that, you know, it's so, I mean, it goes beyond interpreting. So I also, Going back to, to the question, what prompt, prompted me to, to write the book, um, I also, you know, I was working and always getting phone calls, emails from my colleagues saying like, oh, by the way, what kind of speech perception test battery do you use with Spanish speaking patients? What kind of speech radiometry and, and so on? So I thought, what about if I create a one-stop tool that my English speaking colleagues can go to, that if you... If you're wondering what kind of speech perception tests are available in Spanish, this is what we have. And this is where you can get it. What about if, you, if you're wondering, well, all I need is help to, I need to um, instruct the patient, describe a test to the patient, give instructions on how to perform the task to a patient. Mm-hmm. What about if everything is housed in one place? 
Right. I mean, if you think about it, like, I want to have more Hispanic, Latino people access and benefit from the services they access, right? Mm-hmm. And what better way to help my colleagues who are serving this population? So that's how, kind of how the, the, the idea started. Oh, I know exactly what you mean. Having practiced myself in a busy ENT uh, office back in the 90s, I know uh, exactly what you mean. And that was, you know, more than 20 years ago now. And I can only imagine the level of diversity, uh, how it's gotten even more diverse over the last couple of decades. So I think that your your book is a just an outstanding tool for any clinician out there that works with um, Spanish-speaking individuals, um, which I think just about everybody these days encounters um, at least once in a while, if not every day. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things I wanted to just kind of explore a little bit more in your book that kind of caught my attention. One is this uh, notion of cultural competence uh, you talk about in your book um, kind of early on. Uh, if you could kind of share with our viewers what this term count, uh, uh, cultural competence means and uh, how you relate that to clinical practice and audiology. Thank you, Ryan. So um, cultural competence means the system's ability to work effectively with multicultural groups within their communities. So the National Center for Cultural Competence at Georgetown University defines cultural competent organizations as those that value diversity, conduct self-assessment, acquire and promote cultural knowledge, and those that adapt to diversity and the cultural context of the communities they serve. And I think uh, these efforts is what allows them to work effectively with these multicultural groups within their communities. But I think the, the, the word that I want to highlight is adapting, because cultural competence, it's, it's a journey. You're always adapting because you always have to identify the needs of the specific populations that you're serving. So what you just mentioned right now about your experience 20 years ago working in an ENT clinic. So if you think about it, the US Census has a great graph that shows that in the 1960s, the biggest immigration migration wave into the United States came from Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2010, the biggest migration wave comes from Latin America. And Latin American people are not the first people migrating. They're not going to be the last ones. So we always have to be adjusting our services to the population and to the communities we serve. Your department, your hospital can be in a location where right now is a mo- I mean, it's mostly um, I don't know, a Hispanic um, community. And then in 10 years, it's mostly a Portuguese community. So, so you have to constantly adjust to, to, to address the, the specific needs of, of those populations. So, um, so how do you bring that to your audiology practice? And I think we have to, we have to um, understand that it, 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 this doesn't only apply to big departments in big hospital settings. It applies to all of us because we're all, because the, the, our, our communities are becoming more multicultural. So we're all, all going to come across these patients and we all have to prepare to serve and provide quality of services. In this case, in this point in time, 
to the fastest growing group, which is the Latino Hispanic community. So, so basically, if you're in a solo provider, small private practice like mine, or if you are in a major clinical hospital department, um, we all have to have strategies and tools in place so we can serve these communities. And it might be something as simple as having the paperwork in the language of the communities you serve, having testing materials available in those languages, having information materials. So I guess it's, it's first of all, is identifying the communities that you serve, the, where your patients are coming from, and then tailoring the services you provide to those needs. Yeah, that's great advice. I mean, I think that it, what, what speaks to me is the fact that you're um, promoting that you need to, be what, need to be aware of what's going on within your own community and then providing the language or the, the tools that they need so that they can feel comfortable being in your office. And I think, you know, in this, um, in this day and age, which is a good thing, you hear a lot about patient-centered care and patient-centered communication. And uh, to me, given the diversity within the United States, a big part of patient-centered communication is making sure that you have the, uh, the forms, the, the, the right tools that are in the person's uh, language. Uh, so your book, I think, really goes a long way in helping people uh, recognize that um, they need to do that. Um, what I wanted to do next to Alejandra was ask you, I want you to maybe put your uh, public health hat on, because I know in your book, you talk a lot, or a little bit, at least in the beginning of the book, if I remember correctly, around uh, about uh, healthcare barriers and disparities. Uh, you don't hear those terms a lot in audiology textbooks. Uh, so it's really refreshing that you mentioned it in yours. Uh, if you could tell us a little bit more about what you mean by healthcare barriers and disparities. Thank you, Brian. So, um, of course, um, I'm really passionate about this topic. So the CDC defines disparities as those preventable differences in the burden of disease, violence, injury, or just the difference in the opportunity to achieve optimal, optimal health. So these differences are experienced mostly by disadvantaged populations. So when it comes to Hearing, in, hearing imbalance problems. So this is our area of expertise. It turns out that this population group, the Latina Hispanic population, is experiencing healthcare, health and healthcare disparities that put them at a higher risk of hearing imbalance problems. And I think that's the urgency for all of us to prepare to, to provide quality of services to this population. So just to name a few, um, diabetes. Now we know that diabetes, before we used to think of diabetes or a comorbidity, but now we know that diabetes can cause hearing loss, can aggravate here existing hearing loss. So um, the Latino population is twice more common. Um, it's going it, to, it's more like, it's twice, ah, I'm sorry, diabetes is twice more common in the Latino population. Mm -hmm. If we think about cardiovascular disease, the Latino population has a high prevalence of those risk factors for cardiovascular disease, such as high cholesterol, high, high, cholesterol, um, high blood pressure, and so on. So about 45% of the Latino population has high blood pressure. Latino Hispanic men have a high um, level of high cholesterol in the blood compared to other racial or ethnic um, groups. So, 
if we go into dementia, you know, a whole a whole new um, on its own, a, a major issue in the Latino population. So all your listeners, everybody, we are all familiar with the Lancet publication and how um, dementia is um, some risk factors for dementia is less education early in life, um, diabetes, high blood pressure, and cardiovascular disease in midlife, and so on. The CDC goes on into adding ethnicity as a risk factor because um, the Latina Hispanic population has a 1.5 higher probability of developing dementia. So it, it means that this dispar these healthcare and health disparities that we see in the Latino population are also so related to what we do and the services we provide because this population group is going to face hearing imbalance issues because of these healthcare disparities. So when, when we talk about barriers, we're talking about those challenges that socially disadvantaged groups experience to access services and also to receive quality of care because you might make it to the appointment but if nobody speaks your language, can you really benefit from exactly. that, from those services, right? Mm-hmm. So, so when we talk about barriers, barriers can be, you know, lack of transportation, lack of cultural competence training within the workforce. Um, and one of those big barriers is lack of language concordance during the clinical encounter. So language becomes a barrier. Um, you can add health literacy and so on. So. That's kind of um, just to give you, just to name a few samples um, of well, that, barriers that our patients face. Well, I had a question. I'm kind of curious about um, the use of uh, technology. Are we in a situation now where you could use uh, like Google Translate or some other service like that, you know, sort of an automated? So if you don't have an interpreter and you're trying to connect better with somebody that speaks, another language, is there tools out there available today that are viable or are we still a ways away from that? Um, so I think that accuracy has to be you know, at, at the top because we wanna make sure that we're not only translating, but it, it goes within the context. So I would say that um, a great tool that has come up um, in, the, in the recent years is um, remote professional interpreting services. So we know that the quality of the interpretation is as good as in person. Um, There are some studies that show some slight difference, like what we were talking before about making errors, but it's not significantly worse than an an in-person interpreting um, service delivery or something like that. Right. So it's good to know that um, if you don't have a professional interpreter in person, that there are services that provide that remotely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's good to put that on people's radar for those that may not know that's aware that, that that's available. Um, uh, so back to your book, that was a small diversion. I wanted to talk more about your book because one of the things I love about it is that uh, basically for every different kinds of appointments, uh, different kinds of clinical encounters, you have a chapter kind of devoted to each part of the patient journey or each kind of type of appointment. Uh, maybe take us through a couple of chapters and highlight uh, what I mean by that. Um, 
and how you can use that in daily practice if you're an audiologist. Thank you. Um, so the book is split in two parts, right? So part one reviews, reviews those barriers that we were just talking about, those mm-hmm. challenges that patients face. In chapter three, things become a little bit more brighter. <laughs> so things <laughs> are not as sad as just barriers. So in chapter three, we introduce this concept of design thinking. So in design thinking, you, you're always trying to find the pain points that your patients experience. And then you do some brainstorming about what are the possible solutions. You connect with all the stakeholders, the direct and indirect stakeholders, and hopefully you can move on to implement these solutions. So in the third chapter, we go over those barriers that you, that patients, clinicians, that we all experience when we're trying to provide better care to these patients. Mm-hmm. And, and then we, we highlight positive, successful experiences in many of those areas that we've seen in audiology uh, or that we've seen in other specialties. So for instance, in cancer treatment, there has been some improvement in how minority communities access early screening and also um, follow-up, you know, in the following years after treatment. And it's in, and they were talking about the use of patient navigators. So you have a, a patient navigator in place that helps the patient to, uh, you know, identify the challenges they're facing, whether it's related to insurance, transportation, and so on, and they help them overcome those challenges. Um, Another thing that they had been using was like a simple card that, you know, you're going to be on, let's say, uh, surveillance for so many years. So you have a card where it says where your last I'm just going to make mammography was. And so every time you go somewhere, you have um, you have a record of what was done, when was done, where the results and so on. So in this in this third chapter, we just review successful experience. And the idea is just to create an, a discussion to get the reader to think about, OK, these are the things I'm seeing in my clinic because you know, challenges may differ from place to place. If you are in a big urban community, your patients might have different challenges than if you are in a more rural community and so on. So so it invites the reader to think about what are those pain points? What can I do? And what what others have done that have worked, that has worked? And, you know, and what can I implement and so on? And then the second part of the book is the language tool. So in the language tool, one, it's a place where you can find if you're an audiologist and you're providing services, you're wondering, are there any questionnaires in in Spanish? It's not only that you want the questionnaire in Spanish, you want the questionnaire that was validated in Mm -hmm. population. Mm -hmm. So Questioners are there. You also have description of the different tests and instructions for the patients. So if you are a bilingual clinician, but um, you're unsure about terminology in in audiology, this is a great reference place. If you're working with a new interpreter, interpreter that it's not maybe familiar, same thing with the terminology, great place there. If for some reason, 
you ended up not having an interpreter, but you can you can have the patient read the description, the interpretation, the instructions, and so on. And if you open the book, English is on the left hand side, Spanish is on the right hand side. So the, the book right here. Thank you. And the idea was that, you know, the con I guess what I was envisioning was that, you know, patient provider are on the same page kind of thing. Yeah, no, I, I can see how it would work uh, fantastically for that. It's just a great tool to have with somebody that speaks Spanish and you want to be able to communicate more effectively with them. Thank so, you. Thank you, Brian. Well, I'm now I, I know that uh, your time is precious, so I, I don't want to hold you up too much longer. Uh, I was wondering any other insights that you wanted to share about your practice, about uh, your book, um, anything yeah, absolutely. to leave our readers with. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think that so far we've talked about uh, the importance of language in the clinical encounter. And we know some um, studies have shown that when there is language concordance between the provider and the patient, the patient is more likely to ask questions. And therefore, you know, the patient is more likely to understand their condition, understand their recommendations, hopefully, you know, adhere to those recommendations and so on. So I think there is so much room for all of us to work on and improve services. And, you know, we need to increase diversity in, in our study, in, in our student um body so later on we can hire more hispanic latino uh, audiologists but we also but we can also help our english speaking clinicians who have high intermediate advanced level of spanish so these are great bilingual clinicians that if we help them to get their spanish language skills to a clinical level, so they can use the language appropriately in a clinical setting. We, you know, we have more providers out there and more chances that patients will encounter a clinician that speaks their language. And obviously with all the benefits that that can bring. All the more reason why young clinicians, uh, hopefully you took Spanish when you were in high school or, uh, or college, and you can put those skills to use with a little bit of extra training. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, if you're a bilingual audiologist, you know, we need you, but we need you to take those skills to a clinical level because we want you exactly. to provide, you know, high quality of care. So um, yeah. Is, is that what your, the, you mentioned the other uh, business that you have besides your practice? Is that? Yes. Kind of so that's exactly what audiology and Espanolists do. And it's teaching medical Spanish to audiologists who are practicing the profession, who have a high and intermediate or advanced level. So we're helping them transition those Spanish language skills to a clinical level. So um, excellent. But, yeah. So I'm excited about that project too. So if, uh, if our viewers wanted to know more about that, do you have a website or a place they could learn more about it? Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Um, so you can visit audiology in Espanol. So E-N- ESPANOL.com. And you'll learn more about, you know, medical Spanish for audiologists, the courses, what we envision, and, and so on. Well, be sure to put that in the notes so that people have a link. If they go to the website, they can click on the, the notes, the thank summary you. of what we did today so they can see that and get to that easily. So thank you. Again, here's the book, uh, Audiology Services in Diverse Communities. Uh, plural is the publisher. So you can go to the plural 
uh, website and find this book. Uh, uh, it would be a great addition to anyone's library, especially if you're in clinical practice, just about anywhere in the United States, um, probably other places in the world too. So Alejandra Ulari, um, thanks uh, for your time and for your expertise. It was great to have you on this week in hearing, and we look forward to catching up with you sometime in the future. Thank you so much, Ryan. It was a pleasure being with you today.